All right, everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. We have a very special guest today, Ome Congo Dominga. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Man, so exciting to have you here. And I was recently, and some of you guys saw some of the Facebook Lives we did at the National Speaker Association. It was a massive conference. I don't know. And you, you actually took the main stage, Ome Congo. How yeah. many people? Probably 1,500 like professional speakers. That's right. And you absolutely crushed it. We'll get a little bit into your, your, you know, your background. You speak Swahili, what, French and English, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Swahili's a little basic. I got to brush up on it. But yeah, my parents are from uh, Congo. And so Swahili was part of that growing up. So my son just got back from uh, nine months overseas living in Arusha, Tanzania. Wow. Yeah. So uh, he went, he took a gap year from college with uh, Youth with a Mission YWAM. Mm-hmm. And ended up in Arusha, so he learned some Swahili, and he still wears the uh, from the market. He bought the sandals made out of truck tires. Oh wow! Yeah, he, and they're, yeah, cool. they're like this thick. They weigh, you know, but he wore those the entire time he was there because they thought they were so cool. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just a little background, everybody. So I heard you speak, and you were talking about some of the racial differences that we have, some of the things that are going on in our country right now, they're front and center on the news. And this is something, and I shared with you in an email, right? This is something I talk about, I teach about, I train about. But you even said some things where I I felt like 90% of what you said, man, I'm like right on, preach it, brother. And like 10% of it, I felt myself like going, hmm, is that me? I, I felt myself getting a little defensive. And I'm, I'm actually sitting there thinking, you know what, as a 52-year-old white guy, from your experience, if I'm actually starting to get maybe a little defensive on things you're saying, man, you know what, for myself, I'm like, you know what, there's there's more I need to learn. There's more, there's definitely room for improvement. And I think that, and I know you were just speaking about how do we actually have conversations with people and start opening up dialogues with people we don't agree with. Because until we start doing that, some of these problems in this world, we, we don't, we're not going to address, we're not going to fix because you know what? God created all of us with magnificence, with greatness. We all need to be treated that way, with you know, unconditionally loving everybody, regardless of what they think, right, of <laughs> what they yeah. say. Yeah. So a little yeah. background on you, then we're going to jump in, because you have an amazing story. You're a professor of cross-cultural communication at American University. You founded and started Upstander International, and you guys can go check that out. It's upstanderinternational.com, correct? Yes. Right, you guys can go check that out while, while you're listening. If you're uh, on a computer, uh, you do a lot of leadership and diversity training, speaking uh, nationally, internationally. You're a motivational speaker. You are a trilingual poet. You're a rapper, and I've heard you do some of that, and it was awesome. Uh, <laughs> TV talk show, uh, and you know what? You've studied at Harvard, MIT, Princeton, Georgetown, Morehouse, Fletcher School, dude. I barely made graduate, got my undergraduate degree, so you know, big props there because I don't know how you do that. You are definitely a lifelong learner. You got a PhD in international education policy from University of Maryland. You've been on O Magazine. You've been on CNN, BET, BBC, NPR. There's probably millions of people that have heard you across the world. So I'm, I, I, I just feel honored to have you on our podcast to share because I think it's so important. But. You know, with that, I'd love for you to just maybe bring us back because some of the things you shared earlier just about your family and growing up, some of the things that I think shaped you are really, really meaningful. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, again, thanks thanks for having me. And 
for me, my growing up in Boston, Massachusetts, it was uh, you know a challenge. You know, my parents they came over here um, after colonialism in in Congo was then called Zaire, and you know they made their way um, with the help of uh, missionaries to Chicago. They were already professors. They were teaching in Congo there, but with the wars and everything that were breaking out, structures broke down. They crossed over into Central African Republic as refugees and made their way to Illinois and uh, eventually made their way to different parts of the country, settling in Boston, where uh, they got their doctorates from Harvard as well as um, Sabon and France. And their experiences, their challenges really made them understand the importance of a couple of things. You know, one, the importance of education and two, the, the importance of God and, you know, believing in a higher power. They've been they were went through so much that it was really that the faith that led them to be able to just believe that there could be something greater. And in my situation, a lot of Congolese, we were colonized by by Belgians. And so a lot of Congolese ended up going to France or Belgium because those are French speaking countries. And my parents made the decision to come to the United States all in search of a better life for their children. And so for us, when we finally settled down in Boston, you know, things started out okay, but then we started to fall on lots of hard times. And one of the biggest hard times people fell on was the, the crack epidemic. Oh. And I grew up during that. And people talk a lot about the heroin epidemic now. The crack epidemic was similar, but the difference was there was a lot more violence because of gang wars, turf wars, drug wars. And so growing up in the inner city and, you know, because of my parents, they were also very active in terms of just working to fight for change. They didn't focus a lot on, on making a lot of money. They focused on service. And what that meant for us was that we fell on hard times. And so growing up without a lot of money, not a lot of resources, at the height of a crime, gang-infested time, uh, just was really, this is like late 80s, early 90s. This was really troublesome for us. And it was even predicted that if you were a black male, Hispanic male growing up in these cities, you were going to die before the age of 25 or go to prison. And those were the forecasts that were set upon my life. And so, now, and was that being told to you? So you're like thinking to yourself, wow, I got like 10 years to go and then I'm done. So I got to make the best of it. Oh, yeah. I, it, you would see it on television, on news reports. I vividly remember seeing people walk around with T-shirts that said black males, endangered species. I remember talking to my older sister once who said, you know, I never really thought I was going to live her herself. She never thought she was going to live past 25 anyway. So you know, some of the decisions that were made weren't long term. And so many of us were just like, this is it, you know, die on our feet as opposed to live on our knees type mentality. And mm. those things really kind of made me not really care about a lot. Mm. And it really started to change when my father went to Zambia and they tried to assassinate him. You know, they bashed his head in with a crowbar. And so for my entire seventh grade year, you know, you add everything I just told to you, and then you add pulling my father away from that. And I just gave up. I just gave up. You know, I he was in a coma that whole time, right? Yeah, that, that whole time. And I just didn't care about school anymore. I was an honor student. And it was just it was just like, why am I even here? That was a real deep moment for me. I was suicidal. I wanted to check out. I just didn't believe. I just didn't believe. And my turning point was, you know, I went to a conference and I heard a, a speaker say, you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I just started figuring out, is there a way that things can get better for me? And I started to really start to turn and start to develop that faith into something different. And then my dad came home, which was part of that faith, brought him home, yeah. came back to my life. And that started making me realize that I can do some different things. And what's amazing was that 
my community didn't change. The crime was still there. The drugs were still there. The problems I was having in school were still there. But I changed, you know, my mind. And then everything else started to change around me. And that was the key to me really being able to change my life and do the things that you read about in the bio today. So what advice do you give to, you know, people listening that either might be in that situation or, you know what, they know somebody, they're mentoring somebody, they, they have a young kid in regardless, in a, that's maybe in that same spot. Because sometimes when you're in that spot and you're trying to give somebody advice, sometimes it's it just, it's, man, there's an immediate wall that goes up. Does that make that's sense? Right. That's right. Absolutely. First thing you got to do is listen. Mm. You know, Les Brown says we got two ears, one mouth. We have to use them in proportion. People get to the bottom. They get low because they're tired of hearing what everybody else has to say. Mm. It gets to the point of who's listening to me. When you see situations where you know, kids are, are cutting themselves or even in some of these extreme examples, some of these things with, with, with the school shootings, kid, children are going to do whatever it takes to get themselves hurt. Sometimes they're going to hurt themselves. Sometimes they're going to hurt others. So rather than, than just giving, just starting out with the speeches, hey, what's on your mind? What's going on? Why do you feel how you feel? Sometimes children are, or people in general, they may be too ashamed of whatever happened to them to speak to their parents because they feel like they'll be judged. Mm -hmm. They may not feel comfortable going to a teacher. And so the spaces by which they have to express themselves may be very confined. You could be that one voice out of so many others that can help save them. For me, somebody informed, I told a community worker organizer about my suicidal thoughts, and he told my sister. And same sister I just mentioned who said she didn't think she lived past 25 and now she was in her 30s and, you know, doing her work. And, you know, she sat down and, you know, told me how much I would be missed. But then she also just listened to me. And just being heard made me start to realize my value again. So we can all talk and give great speeches, but the best leaders are the best listeners. And I'm guessing uh, that your sister, when she was listening wasn't judging you, wasn't trying to fix a problem for you, wasn't maybe giving advice until you finally got to the point where you maybe asked her her thoughts, right? That's an important dynamic. I think as soon as we start trying to tell somebody or try to help them too early, they'll Mm -hmm. just like, you're like everybody else and they just like, you know, check out. That's right. That's right. And it's just, you know, we just have to do more, more listening because everybody has a story and some people are going to do whatever it takes to get themselves hurt. Yeah. Now you graduated the Latin school. And you, so you went back, graduated with honors. What did you reconnect to? You think you realized, hey, it, it, this is a temporary solution, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah. Right? Your sister reached out to you, but obviously you reconnect to something that really put some fuel in your tank because from there on out, you just really focused and, and became very accomplished. What was that? Connecting to, the, to that higher power. You know, I, I started really thinking about um, our ancestors and all of the things people have gone through throughout history. And I thought, what did those people hold on to to get themselves through? Because at any moment, you could be lynched, you could be hung, you could be burned alive, you could, be, you could watch your children get sold and killed. And it was that faith. They connected to a higher power. They saw God and, and, and they saw the, the possibility that something could be beyond this moment. And I, when I started thinking about that, and I realized that even though my problems were similar, they paled in comparison. And so I was like, if these people could focus on something higher, 
maybe I could start to use that. So I started studying, you know, my ancestors, studying my history, studying not only, you know, those moments, but people like Dr. King and, and other people who use faith to pull themselves through into something greater. And that's when I started to just start thinking that something better can happen for me. And, you know, some what Les Brown talks about, and I, I quote Les Brown a lot because he trained me when I started doing motivational speaking. Right and, you know, on. he talks about, yeah, he talks about the ego and how it means edging goals out, but it also means edging God out, you know, which he also mm. says. And we start pushing it over and start thinking we can do these things on our own, but we have to connect to something higher. And that's what helped me turn around because I realized I wasn't going through this alone. Okay, so you, you graduate the Latin school. You know, one of the things you talked about, Ome Congo, is uh, your parents and the influence they had in your life. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think something right now that we need to really reconnect with as a society is actually, as parents, the power that we have, the influence and the impact. And I think not only just in our young kids, teenage kids, my personal belief is actually some of the most important parenting we can do is actually when they're out of college and they're in their 20s and 30s. So, but mm -hmm. what, what are some of the things that your parents did, modeled, I mean, clearly... I mean, they were going through some hard times. Your dad comes back from having been attacked and been in a coma. Your focus, your parents have a servant heart, so things are, are hard at home. But they really sowed some really meaningful things into you and your sister, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, and I, and I have eight brothers and sisters. So I was just talking to you about oh, one. Okay. I, yeah, I'm, the, I'm number seven of nine. I'm okay. close to the bottom. But, I mean, you know, that is a fun family dinner, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what, what they did, you know, growing up, it was like growing up and, you know, our home was like an African village, you know, and, and it fortified us against all of the things we would deal with when we went outside the house. Because another thing I didn't mention was we all dealt with intense levels of bullying because of what people saw on television in terms of the stereotypes on Africa. I mean, my older brothers and sisters, you know, we think 70s, 60s, you know, Tarzan was huge. And, you know, the Sally Struthers commercials where, you know, every image that people saw of Africa was just negative. And so we were, people would throw rocks at us. They would beat us up in school. Even our teachers sometimes would call us names. And, you know, what our parents always said was never abandon the community that you're in. Go deeper into that community. The people that are pushing you away, embrace them, love them. And right now, my sisters, my three sisters, right now, they run a, a dance school in Boston where they have over 500 students. And many of those kids are the kids of people who bullied us when we were kids. Because, you know, we didn't give up on them. We gave back. And, you know, we realized that a lot of people who are bullying us weren't really doing anything productive with their lives. And some have since apologized, you know, to us and recognized that they were wrong. And some of them have brought their kids to us. So another thing our, our parents taught us was to hate evil, but not hate the people who practice it. So that whole concept, you know, my father, you know, he's retired now. You know, he, he was a minister and had a church uh, in Boston you know, for a while. And he taught about the importance of, you know, not hating the people who practice evil, but hating evil itself. And that allowed me, I can't speak for, for all my brothers and sisters, but I know for me, it allowed me to start looking past the person and looking behind, looking at what's behind them. And that's when I started to learn that a lot of people who are bullies come from abusive situations at home and they're hurt. And this is how they, they know how to react. And so start to look at them a little bit differently 
that helped me. But that whole concept of the spirit of service and the greatest among you being your servant, that plays with me to this day in everything that I do. Well, you know, that brings up an interesting point. Like, I mean, we could spend probably the whole time talking about the kind of character and person that you are that can do that. Because, you know, when you're being bullied, you're being hurt by others, because I've been in that situation in a different way. But, uh, you know, I was always that young kid that was overweight, uncoordinated, and I went to a high school that was all about athletics. Oh, wow. I used to, man, so I hear you. I'd come home some days crying. Right. And yeah. then I didn't, I'm six foot two, 220 now, but going mm-hmm. into my senior year, I was only five foot eight. Uh-huh. So, okay. So I didn't actually, but here's a question for you. So and I know you talk about this a lot. One of the things I think it's really important for us to lead people, to bring out the best in people. One of the things we always talk about is, you know what, there's always something in somebody else's life that we just don't know about. Right. And how do we actually have conversations and help people who we just feel like we're very different from them? Maybe our values, our, our beliefs, our things like that. And like, I don't know. I mean, you and I greet. We, you know, you have a smile. We, mm-hmm. but, but if you ever walked into a room and all of a sudden you just, somebody's there. And as soon as you see them, right? Like I'm wearing a black polo shirt, I got gray hair. You just mm-hmm. immediately look at me and have a reaction, a negative right. reaction. That's right. Because there's something preloaded in your brain and your cognitive memory, and you're like, okay, somebody like that hurt me in the past or said something to me that was really painful. And I think, you know, recognizing that, you know what, there's a, especially what I've also noticed being in business, a lot of people that have very, very different backgrounds from their experiences are so widely different, right? To really actually try to understand where they're coming from, maybe even how they react in a situation that makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. and makes maybe perfect sense to them, or they don't even know you know, where that's coming from. But I would love for you to maybe share some of those things to educate people that maybe don't have some of the experiences and background you do to what are some of those things that actually hold us back from having better relationships out in the world when we have people with different backgrounds that are trying to come together to, to accomplish something? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a powerful question. I mean, one of the things that I said during the speech at the Speakers Association conference was, you know, quoting Donna Ford, who said, you know, the less we know about each other, the more we make up. Mm. And, you know, when we see somebody, what we have to do is rather than question them, we have to ask ourselves questions. Why do I think that about this person? What reason has he or she given me to look down on them? Why can't I look at them favorably from the beginning? Because what that does is it challenges us to question our assumptions. So if I said, what is it that's making me look at you with suspicion? My answer might be, my issue is that every white male that I've encountered has always said something negative to me. Or any issue, you know, maybe I had a bad relationship with one white male teacher. And so when I do that, And then I ask myself the question, okay, do I want to be judged off of this man's bad interaction with one black person who happened to have locks? So if I don't want to do that, why would I do that to him? You know, know, judge lest he be judged, right? So we have to flip it and we have to start asking ourselves, how do I want to be treated? Because whether we like it or not, whenever, like you said, whenever one of us walk into a room, somebody's already attaching a story to that. Yeah, I had a student at American University where I teach told me that when I saw you, professor, on the first day of class, I asked who gave me the angry black male professor. 
didn't know anything. He said he didn't know anything about me, didn't read my bio, just saw this, saw the skin, and that was that. But as he started to question himself, he started to realize that his assumptions were wrong. So rather than question the person in front of you, challenge yourself with your own stereotypes and biases. And once you realize those things are wrong, give that person the benefit of the doubt. Let them prove to you who they are. Give them that option. They deserve it. So what are, you know, from the things that you've seen, right, what are some of those biases that can really create some friction, tension, or even anger in relationships? Uh, well, a lot of it comes down to, to stereotypes. Yep. One of the challenges is that, you know, even though this, this country has so many diverse cultures, in many parts of the country, we just don't live near each other. So a lot of what we see is informed by television. A survey from the Washington Post around 2014 or so, they did a survey that said that about 74%, 75% of white Americans have no black friends. We're not talking work associates or people who might do, you know, work around your house or, or things like that, like friends, acquaintances, people you go to the game with, right? And this is in the 20 teens. And so if they don't have those friendships, what they're going to get from about black people are the stories you get on television. And we both know that the majority of stories we see about black people on television are either entertainment or things relating to crime. And then, so if you, and if you flip that and, and you go to communities where many black people don't interact with white people, they're only gonna get what they see on television. So those are some of the reasons why we have these, these implicit biases because we're all being educated by media. We're not taught to have regular interactions. I mean, just look when you walk down the street today. I can guarantee you, when you walk down the street today, maybe at least two-thirds, three-quarters of the people you see walking are going to be on a device of some sort. Mm -hmm. Where's the exchange? You know, they're going to be on their phones. They're going to be looking down. They're going to have the earbuds on. They're going to be listening, not talking. If you get lost nowadays, you'd rather pull up something on your GPS for walking directions than ask the person next to you. So we're increasingly <laughs> creating these, and, I, and I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of it too. Yeah, easy. So we're continually creating more bubbles where we don't have to have conversations. But human beings are supposed to thrive on interaction. So we have to do the intentional work of getting out there. Even if you know you're not going to be around the community, you can go on Facebook and find the communities that you don't really interact with, and just ask questions. But not just questions sincere questions, genuine questions. I really don't know. I've never, I'm just making this up. I've never really encountered a white person that wasn't racist. You know, for those of you all who are white and don't feel like you're, you're racist, you know, how do you feel about that when people say that? You know what I mean? Just ask questions. You know, we're both part of the National Speakers Association. There are communities there of different people of different backgrounds. I've gone to them and I've asked questions. Say, hey, man, I don't know what it's like to grow up in a Muslim household. Can you break this down to me? Hey, man, I don't know what it's like to be in the South and, you know, and be from Texas. And people say that Texas is just all this or all that. What's it like? You know, NSA has allowed us to have these type of conversations. Yeah. And we're not sitting in the same room. So what I'm saying is rather than using all of this technology to further enclose ourselves, mm. we can use it to expand a greater world. Well, you know, that's such a great question, right? If you sat down to me and said, hey, I've never met a white guy where I didn't feel, you know, there was some kind of bias or racism or that you judge me, 
right? My reaction can't be one of, of defensiveness or judgmental backs. That just proves your point. You know, right. we need to have these conversations actually with a deep sense of curiosity about why somebody feels that way. And you know what? Maybe I'm doing something either intentionally or very unintentionally that I actually need to take personal responsibility for to actually make some changes about how I actually show up in situations. Maybe I have some body language that I'm not even aware of because I'm maybe I'm just uncomfortable because mm-hmm. I grew up in Minnesota. We had a public high school of... This was in Burnsville, Minnesota. I think there's 3,500 people there. In our entire student body, there was mm-hmm. one African-American student. Wow. But that's the makeup of the demographics of that little suburb. It's not mm-hmm. a it's a lower middle class suburb, but that's just kind of Minnesota. So growing yeah. up, and then I got to tell you, I'll never forget, I went down to Meridian, Mississippi for Navy flight school. And um, we had a guy in our class... Uh, Black guy, awesome guy. We became great friends. But he started dating a white girl. This is in Mississippi. And they came and threatened him. They threw bricks. We were absolutely in shock. This was my first experience ever even observing this. Mm -hmm. He had, because this became so problematic, They uh, he actually had to transfer to Texas to finish his flight training. I honestly, growing up in Minnesota... Omicongo didn't even think that people that that thought like that or did that even existed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how wrong am I? And, and so think about people like his name was Chris. I'll guarantee you that's probably still a defining period of his life from Chris basically experienced real persecution as an officer in the military. And I can't even imagine some of the other stories, but that's right. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think really trying to understand where people come from. I know the the terms around white privilege and other things mm-hmm. trigger a lot of white people because mm-hmm. right? they don't want to believe that that's true, right? I'm still right. thinking about that. What would be a great, you know, people listening out there, right? They're yeah. hearing some of these things. We, you know what? If we don't do something, right, nothing will happen. So let's do something so something will get, happen, which means we have better relationships, a better, stronger culture. We can help people achieve somebody coming out of a a home where there's abuse, bias, prejudice, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know for a fact, a lot of people, a lot of white people out there, and maybe this is an uncomfortable topic for people to listen to really think that stuff doesn't happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now Mm -hmm. let me ask you that question. Does that stuff happen? That, that people think that it doesn't happen. (laughs) No, 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 that it actually is people's real, you know, that is their worldview because it's actual experience of, of their life that they've experienced racism, bias, you and I are competing, right? You outwork me. All of a sudden I get the promotion. What does that say to you? Mm -hmm, I mean, stuff mm -hmm. like that I know happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then I think then just a resource I would add is I can't think of the, the woman's name right now, but there's a new book out, you know, that talks about white fragility. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's by a, a, a white author and, you know, it speaks a lot about that defensiveness. And, you know, I think that one of the people, one of the things that people really have to do, and this is another challenge that we have in this country, is that we don't read. Mm. You know, I think Pew Research came out with a study that said something to the effect of last year, less than 35% of Americans read a book. And audio book, ebook, physical book, you know, so we're not learning the history. So when Chris comes up and tells his story, 
people are going to say, oh, well, that doesn't happen anymore, or I'm sure it was just you. But what about internalizing? We internalize things. Look at what's happening with our Jewish brothers and sisters when we talk about the, the Holocaust. Like what happened with that is internalized. So when people see people being put into you know, camps or situations now, it's still there. So that collective memory is still a real thing. Look, my parents are from Congo, like I said. I'm born in Massachusetts, so I don't have that centuries-long African-American experience here. But I'm still affected by what happened to Emmett Till. When we talk about, you know, 14-year-old boy who came down to, you know, to the South from Illinois and, and was beaten to death in what, you know, 1957 or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. time period. Mm-hmm. That happened. And growing up, a lot of us were told not to associate with white girls when we were coming up. And this was in the 90s and the 2000s. Because stories like Emmett Till, who was killed for allegedly whistling at a white woman and beaten to a pulp, and we all saw his face. Those types of stories still play in our collective memory. And I'm not even generations in this country. And so we have to stop denying people their history. Mm. I'll give you another example as it relates to sexism. I was once told that I couldn't get this job. I was literally told by the people who I was applying to that they couldn't give me this job because they needed to hire more women. Now, on my worst day, I would never walk up to a woman and say, Hey, I know what it's like to be discriminated against because of my gender. I got turned down for that job. That would completely be denying centuries of injustice on them. So we, again, ego, ego, ego. If we can just stop and listen to people's stories and realize that people are going through things that we just never experienced, then we can start helping each other out, be, you know, be allies for each other. And I don't really use allies, that term a lot, but we can help each other out if we can just get past our ego. You know, that's an interesting point, right? A lot of us, when we're in a conversation, I want to make maybe say something that relates to you. And I, you know, as, as a white guy, I've probably, I'll never forget when I was living in Japan, mm-hmm. right? We were near a base and we went in to go have dinner. And because we were white, because we were gaijin, they would not serve us, not even give us water. And we were so angry, but if somebody's wow. telling me that they've actually experienced prejudice and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. Let me tell you about this one time in Japan. <laughs> They're like, dude, seriously, like one, five minutes of your life versus a whole life. Come on. So, you know, you're right. So a really good point is when you're listening to somebody who has very different experiences, man, just listen. And then guess what? Ask more questions. Be curious because you really want to understand who they are. And then I think just like Christ did. How do we serve them? What is one thing that we can do to help them? So, you know, I got to tell you, you are a man who is just exudes passion. So (laughs) I got to ask you a question. What, you know, you have a, you're on, you are on point right now. You're on task. What is your mission today? I just want to get as many people as possible to be sold on themselves. Mm. We sell people on so many other things, you know, drugs, this, you know, this for that condition and do this, be like that person. I want, as Oprah said, people to understand that you were validated at birth. Just realize that if you fortify yourself, you know, with with those core beliefs and and belief in something stronger, and if you look at yourself and realize that you are fine just as you are, you know, we can all work on ourselves. Someone once said that if you hear a negative comment, you have to hear the positive opposite 
17 times before you believe it to be true. So if I tell you you're stupid, 17 people have to tell you you're smart. Or I have to say it 17 times. I want to be one of those 17 voices to just walk up to people and say, you're okay, you're good. Now let's just get out there and do the work that you're meant to do. We have so many things out there blocking us from our greatness, telling us we can't reach our goals because we're too old, we're too young, we're too dark, we're too light, we're too poor, we're too rich. And I want to, my mission is to inspire people anywhere I meet around the world or who see my work to say, forget all of that. It's, a non- it's nonsense. It's a lie. Get out there and just do your best and forget the rest, as Tony Horton says. Oh, I love that. So, you know, somebody listening who's maybe where you were back, you know, they related to your story, right? You know, back when you were back in Latin school, or and I guarantee you, I, I'm sure if we had some more time, there were some big highs and lows. So when you're really kind of in that low spot in the valley, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody listening right now, they just feel like the whole world's against me, or I'm just not connecting to my worth right now. Yeah, yeah. What would you say to that person right now who's listening? So William Ward said that when he's talking about adversity, that we can come up with a thousand reasons why we can't do something when all we need is one reason why we can and why we should. So what I would say to that person is find the one thing that you can do to get up in the morning. I had a a mother who who brought her daughter to me when I was also in high school. Once I got started getting myself together, I started mentoring other people. Mm-hmm. And her daughter was suicidal. And as I spoke to her, I said, what's the one thing that we can do that can help you get to the next day? And she said, well, I have a little brother that I really care about. And so I said, do everything possible to latch on to that. And now, you know, 20 years later, she's married, her own child, Yeah, she's doing work in the community. So when everything is pulling you down, when everything is beating you down, when everybody's telling you you don't believe, you're not worth it, find that one thing. Maybe it's a career thing you wanted to have. Maybe it's a verse from the Bible or or your favorite other, you know, a text of something else. Maybe it's a lyric from a song. Maybe it's it's that teacher in the second grade who out of all the teachers you ever had was the only one who ever said that you're valuable that you can be something positive. Maybe your parents told you you're no good, but there was that pastor who spoke something to you. Just that whatever that one thing is, use that to take you into the next day. And then maybe in that next day, you're gonna find two things. You're still gonna have 998 other things telling you that you're worthless and to end it, but after one day, you might, after three days, you might find three things. That helped me find that one thing that you could block out everything else and just focus on and that can help. Someone told me once, whenever you're ready to quit, give yourself one more day. One more. Well, you know, that sounds like hope, right? What if I actually, you know, have this hope or this something that Ome Congo said to me that I'm actually can do something great with my life? What if it's actually true and all the other stuff in my life, I'm actually just hanging on to that one little comment thinking, you know what? What if he's right? And we can be that life giver in the other people, right? You said be one of those 17. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you talked about, uh, you know, your favorite verse, Corinthians sixteen thirteen. You wrote this down here. And let me, I, if it's okay with you, I'd like to read what you wrote because I, I thought this was powerful. So it says, to be on your ground, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, which you absolutely are, my friend, be strong. <laughs> this is important to me because it speaks to the importance of standing true to my convictions and walking by faith and not by sight. What does that mean to you to walk by faith and not by sight, you know, and in, in really executing the, this mission that you're on right now? 
uh, going back to Les Brown, you know, he said, you know, a lot of people say, we'll believe it when I see it. But he said, you have to yeah. flip it and first say, I'll see it, then I'll believe it. You know, if all of us knew how our life was going to turn out, there'd be no point in doing anything. So for some reason, from the higher power, we got this ability to wake up into a new day, to mm -hmm. breathe, to be able to speak, to be able to communicate. And so to me, and, and through no work of our own, we came here. The parents and everybody else did the work. <laughs> but, you know, there's nothing that I did that caused me to be here. So that means that there's something there's always been something else at play. And our goal in life has to be to do the work to find out what that is. And we have to remember that we're not given any challenge that we can't handle. So maybe if you told me about your challenges growing up, you know, and being overweight and all of that, maybe if that challenge was given to me, I wouldn't be able to handle it. Maybe if my challenges I spoke of were given to you, maybe you wouldn't be able to handle it. But we're all given the things that we can handle, that only we can deal with. And so we have to realize that what's happening today does not mean it's what's going to happen tomorrow. Because even though our lives may be miserable right now, we can point to a time at some point where we had at least that one good day. Maybe we went to the amusement park, that time where, you know, our mom took us, you know, to this place or that place. Um, so if we can have that one good day in the past, we can have more good days in the future. But we have to start surrounding ourselves with people and literature and other things that fortify that. Because whether we like it or not, we are being fortified. And another speaker once said that once life is a battle for territory. Once you stop fighting for what you want, what you don't want automatically takes over. So if you don't work every day to fortify your mind, those other voices coming in telling you you're too this, too that, they're going to take over. And like Oprah said, what you think about expands. So start working on channeling those thoughts into something that can expand into something more possible and help surround yourself with people who are going to help you do that. Oh, that's beautiful. And you know, it's interesting. When I got out of the, I was in the Navy, I, I flew a long time ago. And I was getting out and getting into business and had no idea what I was doing. And I had this amazing mentor. And what he told me was the person that you're going to be in five years depends on two things. A, the power of association. You have to go find people that do, think, have what you want. And he said, be careful who you choose. Because if you choose somebody who's really wealthy, who's on their, their third wife and their kids hate them, well, you, you know what? If you listen to them, you're going to get the same results. Mm -hmm. But he said, the other thing is, it's what you put into your mind. And he challenged me to read a minimum of 10 pages of a book every single day. And if you look at all these bookshelves, I've now been doing that for 25 yeah. years. Wow. And I got to wow. tell you, there's times when I've had to, because I was so committed to becoming a different person, to getting different results, because I was actually in a really bad place way back then. There was times I would have to stand up because I would fall asleep. I was so tired to get through my 10, just my 10 pages of like a book you recommended, Think and Grow Rich, and mm -hmm. Napoleon Hill, you know, Dale Carnegie, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I, I was reading people skill book because I didn't have people skills mm -hmm. coming from my background uh, and how I grew up. And I, I so uh, commend you. Now, I want to kind of end with a call to action, but for people... Uh, everybody there, you need to you need to connect with Omicongo Dominga. Your website is upstanderinternational.com, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, correct. Upstanderinternational.com. Uh, if anybody out there is looking in these topics around leadership and bias and inclusion and diversity, but really 
creating an, an amazing organization where everybody is in harmony, getting the best out of each other. Right. I gotta tell you, I've heard you speak. Uh, I don't recommend a lot of speakers, but it was, <laughs> it was, in my opinion, the most powerful speech of three or four days. Oh, wow. Some of the top professional speakers in the world all presenting. Wow. I got to tell you, I, I was. I appreciate uh, I received that. Thank you. Yeah, man, you have a gift, but clearly you've, ta- you've worked really hard at developing that gift so that you can turn that gift into something that really is transformational, right? Which creates permanent yes. change in people around you. And that's the ripple effect, right, man? If you can touch my life. And I can go be working with a team at one of my clients and bring in something I heard from you that touches that group. Is That's why we call our company Beyond Influence, right? Because mm-hmm. I'll tell you right now in my life, you're going to be leading beyond your own influence because I'm going to take some of the things from our conversation and try, do my best to do better at what I do with people that who you don't know might never even meet. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that is the gift that we all have, right? One person yes, sitting out there in a really bad situation holding on to hope, holding on to that one thing that starts to kind of, you know, step forward on a little different path that's so much better. Mm-hmm. You could be an example to 100 people. And those 100 people then could be an example to 100 people. Who that's could right. be an example to 100 people. That could easily happen over three or four years. That doesn't sound, you know, that long. But do you know that that's a million people? That's I'll right. tell you right now, one person out there listening who just starts making some small changes on how you show up, how you think, how you react to other people, what your mm-hmm. attitude is toward people that have different beliefs. And that has, you know, unfortunately just become rampant in this society. We're not going to solve these really, these real problems in the inner city, culturally, racially, sexism, just all mm-hmm. these isms, right? Yeah. And whether yeah. you think these are real problems or not, they're real to the people that experience them. That's okay? right. And That's unless right. we actually change the conversation, we are not going to come together as a people. Because guess what? We're all a people. We're a community. And we mm-hmm. need to care about not just what, I, you know, mine and my own, but it's about what we can also bring out. That's always been my motto is how do I live my life so the use of my life outlives my life? Mm, I love that. Right? Love Especially that. going through my accident when I should have died a few years ago realizing mm-hmm. that if I had died at that point, that is not how I would be remembered. Mm-hmm. And I got a chance to completely rewrite the script. And I was given wow. a second chance. And here's what I realized was, is every single day, we, every one of us is given a second chance. The question is, do we want to take advantage of it? That's right. Now, if you're listening to this right now, guess what? This morning was your second chance. And if you blew it, here's the good news. Really good news. Tomorrow is your next shot at another That's second right. chance. So right. I really encourage people to just plug into you if this is something that you're growing toward, want to learn more about, to bring into your organization. So, uh, hey, just as we wrap up, uh, Omicongo, what are, what just everybody listening across the spectrum in all the different countries, different races, you know, what, what are just a final maybe thoughts that you'd like to leave with everybody? I just think that it's really important for people to understand that we're all in this together. This is one planet, and we need to do our best to, to show love and just be one people. And if we just step outside of ourselves and realize that it's never been just about us, that it's been about advancing humanity, not our race, not our this or that, we would just be able to look at things in an entirely different light. And so I just encourage everybody to do the work that's needed 
to do that work and to surround yourself with other people who are doing that work. And then we can all get to that promised land. There's room for everybody. You know, I love that because, you know, for me, what you just described is a kingdom perspective, right? You know, if I look at God's kingdom here on earth, right, that is acknowledging his sovereignty in every relationship, every conversation, every interaction. And I think I, I, you know, I shared with you before we started, right, when I was first in God's presence, my first thought was, I'm not worthy of somebody loving me like this. Mm-hmm. And then I asked myself, yeah. do other people feel that way when they're around me? Right. Man. Right. So there's a question you guys can ask yourself. You know what? When people are around you, here's another call to action. Maybe you can add on to this before we wrap up is I would just encourage or even challenge everybody out there. And I would love to hear from you. Go find somebody that is different than you that you don't agree with and go offer to go buy them a cup of coffee or get together. And you know what? If you can't afford buying them a cup of coffee, offer to just go Dutch. (laughs) But you know what? Just go practice having a conversation with somebody who you don't agree with and be that person that talks the least and asks the most questions. And I'd love to hear what you discover. Any thoughts on that? That's that's a testimony right there. You know, like I said, we all can practice how to be the best speakers. We have to do the work to be better listeners. Mm. And so to be intentional about that and just receive what you hear we're literally not taught to do that. We're taught to do the opposite, to get defensive, you know, be, you know, say you're right, wait to speak as opposed to listening, right? And so that could be powerful beyond our knowledge, beyond measure. Awesome. Well, thank you for what you're doing. If there's anything at all we can do, the entire Eternal Leadership community to support you, to serve you forward, man, let me know. And uh, you're always welcome to come back on anytime. And I look forward to the next time I get to see you in person. I'm looking forward to it, too. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Omicongo. Thank you. Take care.